0: Welcome to the Virginia Hospital and Healthcare Association's Patients Come First podcast series, which can be heard on VHHA.com, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you get podcasts. We're also on the radio each Saturday at noon and Sunday at 10 a.m. on 100.5 FM, 92.7 FM, 107.7 FM, and 820 a.m. across Central Virginia, and Wednesdays at 1 p.m. on 93.9 FM in Richmond. Please send any questions, comments, or feedback to Podcast at VHHA.com. Again, that's Podcast at VHSA.com. And today we're excited to be joined by Dr. Henry Rozicki, a professor, vice chair for research and neonatologist with Children's Hospital of Richmond at VCU, who joins us today to talk about his clinical work and research and how his professional life helped in some ways prepare him for a recent multi-day run on Jeopardy, the long-running televised trivia game show. So with that, welcome to the program, Dr. Rozicki. Thanks for being with us. Thanks for having me. Well, we appreciate it. Before we get to your brush with celebrity, by virtue of your successful run on one of America's favorite game shows. Let's talk about your day job with Children's Hospital of Richmond at VCU, where you work as director of the Child Health Research Institute, and your work focuses on why the lungs of premature infants are perhaps more susceptible to damage and impaired development. As an aside, I will share with you that my son, when he was born, was delivered a few weeks early out of medical necessity and was briefly in the PICU due to some breathing difficulty and lung development issues, so... Uh, He's almost 10 now and very healthy and active, but I mention that because this subject is personally interesting to me. So if you would, Dr. Rosicki, tell us a little bit more about that work, please. Sure.
1: Well, first of all, it's good to hear stories like that of your son because one of the things that is sometimes difficult, both being a researcher and being a clinician, is positive feedback, particularly in pediatrics. You don't necessarily see the fruit of your efforts until much later when they grow up. So thank you for sharing that. I mostly deal with premature infants clinically. I've been doing that for 40 years. And both historically and even now, one of the things that is not ready to function when the babies are born early is the respiratory system. And we've come a long way and things have improved a lot. But we've also pushed down the boundaries of prematurity so that we're now looking at 23 weeks for sure and sometimes even 22 weeks gestation. So the problems are magnified when you get down. that level. So the problem is still there. And what happens is that the lungs are structurally not ready, but they're also functionally not ready. And they're not prepared because they don't need to be, and I put need in quotation marks, to be functioning in the real world. Oxygen, for example, when the babies are in utero is about half the level of what it is when they're breathing room air. We give them oxygen, it's even worse. So I've always wondered, why is it that we can give adults some oxygen or ventilator, and they don't get as easily injured as the prematures do. And it turns out that the injury is somewhat similar, although that's a generalization. What happens is that because of the injury, normal development is interfered with. Things that are supposed to be happening in utero don't happen at the right time because of the interruption that occurs because of therapy that we do. So I've looked at, like, why are the lungs different and started out looking at pulmonary functions and and then inflammation, and more recently was focusing on one of the cells that line the lungs called the type 1 cell. And basically in mice, comparing the type 1 cell that we get from newborn mice, which are equivalent to premature infants, and older mice and how they differ in their response to things like oxygen.
0: Well, that's fascinating, and I appreciate you sharing that with us. If you would, you told us about your work a little bit. If you could just tell us a little bit more about the work of the Child Health Research Institute and some of the subjects it's exploring and some of your colleagues are exploring, working to enhance pediatric health. What other things are, does the, the Institute work on? Well, this is one of
1: the more exciting things. We've been growing as both a pediatric department and a children's health center markedly in the last decade we've had many more people. We've started taking care of many more things. We've become as comprehensive as any other place, certainly in the region and, and, and maybe even nationally. And it's also given us a chance to look at basically research, but research not not just at the sort of fundamental level like I'm talking about with type 1 cells, but research in things like why do some kids not get the normal health care that they do, uh, things like equity, what's the best therapy for COVID in children, etc. And one of the things that we noted early on was that there's a lot that goes on in a major research university like VCU that can impact or relate to children's health. So. What we did by forming this Child Health Research Institute was set up a mechanism for collaboration. People within the children's hospital family and children within the whole university family, we bring them together and get them to talk to one another and discover where there's overlap or where there's synergy. We did a lot of talking and interviewing and surveying, and we decided to focus on four themes that are important areas within the university research and also important areas for us clinically. One of them I mentioned is equity, making sure that everybody who needs health care has equal opportunity to get the best health care that they can and exploring the reasons why that doesn't happen, and more importantly, how to fix them. Focusing on neurosciences, and and we define neurosciences not just at the sort of brain development level, but behavioral health and mental health, which is a huge issue for clinicians and for parents, Uh, anxiety, depression, things like that. Another area that we've focused on goes by the acronym EPIC, which is sort of the continuum of emergency care, intensive care, and then cardiopulmonary uh, pathophysiology. And then the fourth area is personalized and translational medicine, taking what's found in the lab and bringing it to the bedside. And around those four areas, we bring people together, we give them seed money for grants. And we just started in, well, we unfortunately started in March of 2020, February of 2020, which was not the best time because that's when COVID started. But we've gotten up and running and
0: we now have, we're on a second round of grant support appreciate you giving that overview. It sounds like there's a lot of exciting work happening there and more good things to come. If we can, let's transition a little bit to your appearance on Jeopardy. I know that you mentioned that you are a researcher, and I know that in some public commentary that you've offered about that experience, you cited your natural curiosity as something that sort of helped propel you towards this opportunity. I wonder if you can take us behind the curtain. As I understand it, you first applied for the show in 2017, but it wasn't until late in 2020. One that you were contacted about being a contestant, which seems like a pretty long runway. So I wonder if you could just tell us about the audition process. I gather there's a, a number of components. It starts with uh, an online quiz and then other hurdles to over- overcome that winnows a pool of thousands of applicants down to a few hundred. So tell us about that experience, if you would, please.
1: Sure. I have actually was one of the luckier people. I went through two what I'll call cycles. There are people who can do this several times over a decade or more before they get on. And a lot of it has to do with luck. So there is a online test that anybody can take. It used to be given at certain times and dates. I took my first one when I was visiting Norway, so it was like 1 a.m. in the morning. Now it can be done anytime. And once you pass that, and they don't tell you what the testing rate is, but it's 50 questions. You do not have to get all of them right. I know I got some wrong, but if you get enough of them right, then you qualify for the next step. The next step is a in-person retest, and now they do it via Zoom, where you take a second 50-question quiz. In a sense, this is sort of a proctored quiz because if you do the online one, they don't know if it's like a group effort or you're looking up things at the same time. This one, they really want to see that it's you that's taking it and that you know it. And then if you pass that, which, you know, they judge pretty quickly, they do uh, what they'll call an audition, where one of the producers talks to you in a very friendly manner. And you also go on with two other people to take sort of a five-minute mock Jeopardy episode using a ballpoint pen as a clicker. And they basically are trying to see how not so much quick you are as as how personable, how, I think more importantly, how well you go with the flow of things. You're not going to suddenly start stuttering and, you know, Mm -hmm. dragging the thing down. Once you pass that, then uh, you go into a pool for 18 months, and the pool can be, I've heard numbers as high as 4,000, as low as 2,000, but it's several thousand people have gone through and passed all that, and out of that, they pick about 350 people, and my understanding is that a lot of that picking is random. So that's why the two most recent multi-winners, Matt Amodio and Amy Schneider, they went through several of those audition cycles before they actually got on, and it had nothing to do with their skill level, clearly. It just had to do with the luck of the draw.
0: That is interesting to hear how that process works and and how involved it can be. And as you said, uh, how some of it is attributable to luck or, or happenstance and good fortune. We can say now that you taped your episodes in California in December and they aired in February of this year. And since they've been televised, I think we are are free to say that you appeared on three episodes and you were twice victorious, uh, winning about $30,000 in prizes. So I wonder, what was that experience like for you? And then the question I'm sure lots of people ask is, are you going to splurge on anything with some of that prize money?
1: Yeah. What was like was, I have to go back to being in elementary school uh, and coming home for lunch. I, I was lucky enough to be able to walk home for lunch back then, and Jeopardy! The original Jeopardy with an announcer named Art Fleming was on at noontime. And so I would, or 1230, and I would actually watch that while eating my lunch and then intermittently kept seeing it over the course of years and kept, because I'm a nerd, kept thinking that I'd like to go on it, but I never did anything about it until 2017. So when I finally got there, it was almost like having something on my bucket list to check off. It really felt iconic. I did not have high expectations because I've watched episodes where I can get nothing right. I've watched other episodes where I do better, but I knew it was, you know, just getting there was pretty special. My goal was not to embarrass myself, not to end up with no money and not able to play the final section called Final Jeopardy. I succeeded beyond my expectations. First of all, getting to Final Jeopardy, then winning once, and then not being a one and done, winning a second time just blew me away. I was giddily in shock when that happened. Then I had to come back home and not tell anybody what happened. We are sworn to secrecy except to our spouse. But then we had the broadcast period in February, which was so exciting for a couple of reasons. Uh, Number one, everybody that I came into contact with around Jeopardy would smile. It's like the only time that I've ever had anything happen where Like, I was the the focus or catalyst of a momentary happiness for everybody that I came into contact with. It was wild. And then, you know, because of social media, I had people connecting with me that I hadn't heard from in 60 years. I mean, I had had a second grade classmate reach out to me. So that was great. And it was both surreal and satisfying and weird. And I'll never do it again, but I'm so glad I did. As to what I'm going to do with the money, I don't know. My wife and I feel like it's like money that you like found on the street. It's like not unexpected. So we should do something that we normally wouldn't do, but we haven't quite figured it out yet. I'm thinking that maybe one day if we take a long trip somewhere we might fly first class cuz normally we don't but haven't really you know they don't send it to you for like 3 months after the broadcast so I don't actually have it in the hand. <laughs>
0: <Okay>. <laughs> well listen it, it sounds like you acquitted yourself well and it's good to hear that you had such a positive experience and that People that you had lost contact with were able to reconnect and that, as you said, it put a smile on a lot of people's face. And with that three-month lag, it sounds like you and your wife will have some time to think about uh, how you're going to perhaps use some of that prize money. So good to hear that uh, it was a positive experience for you all together. And then before we go... At this point in the podcast, we typically ask guests a pair of uh, food and entertainment related questions to give our listeners a bit of a personal insight into our guests beyond the work that they do. But to avoid being predictable, we're switching things up a bit recently. Oh. So I have a I have a menu, and if, and if you want the, those questions, you no, can no, still no, have no, them, no. but no. I have okay. a menu okay. of 10 mystery questions. I'll give you the option. You can select two or you can select one, and I'll give you one of the traditional questions that we that we ask our guests. So I'll give you a little bit of a choice here. Okay,
1: uh, I'll take two numbers, and uh, I'll take uh, one and
0: ten. Okay, all right. So one is one of the traditional questions we ask people. It's the it's the food related question. It's this and the hypothetical scenario that you can anticipate your final day on Earth. What would your last meal be?
1: Uh, I think a lot of people either go for the like you know fanciest dinner they can or some kind of comfort food and i would do the comfort food i grew up in montreal and i grew up in montreal deli and there's a sandwich there called smoked meat and it comes on fresh rye and um, it's piled high it's got yellow mustard that would be
0: my last meal okay nothing like good deli and then question number 10 is what is your happy place and why
1: Mm, it's home I moved into a new house in May, and I've set up a room as a library office, and it's got this 1950s Eames desk, and it's got a big window that looks out on the backyard, and there's a wall full of books, and the sun shines, and it feels
0: good. Well, listen, I appreciate you sharing that with us and I appreciate you being with us today. And with that, that's gonna bring us to the close of another episode of the Virginia Hospital and Healthcare Association's Patients Come First podcast. If you like what you heard, please make sure to leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. Subscribe so that you know when new episodes are available. And we want to once again thank our guest, Jeopardy! Champion, Dr. Henry Rozicki of Children's Hospital of Richmond at VCU for joining us today. So thank you, sir. It was a pleasure.